Hello, friends. Good morning, or good afternoon, or good evening. <laughs> I'm here today with Stacy from Stacy's All Booked, and we're here today to talk about Dark Seas End, the first book in the Beyond Ash and Sand series. Stacy, how are you doing today? I'm doing good. Thank you. <laughs> I'm going to try and get through this without coughing up alone. <laughs> I know. I appreciate you still having the show, and that you're not feeling well. Yeah, no, I, I feel better. It's just a uh, little, little scratchy, but not, not not as bad as it was. So I can't complain too much, but I'll still complain. <laughs> so uh, Dark Sea's End, what, what were your thoughts on uh, on Dark Sea's End? So uh, this is non-spoiler, right? Yeah, we'll keep it non-spoiler for now. Okay, so <clears throat> compared to the first trilogy, so I will say that for any of you guys considering reading this, you definitely should read the first three books first. Um, I don't think there's a whole lot of things that are spoiled in this story for that trilogy, but you get a lot more out of this story if you, if you had read the original trilogy. But compared to the original trilogy, this wasn't as good. But that's a very thin line between wasn't as good and because the first trilogy was all all five or all three books were five stars. So this one was a four and a half star for me. And um, I loved it. Um, I think it, <laughs> it's going to sound silly. It wasn't long enough. I think mm. there was so much more I wanted to learn about the new places that the story goes um, in the world. And I didn't get enough. And it was so fast paced. You, the story moved really quickly and I loved that. But it, by the time it ended, I was like, what, what? <laughs> so it became a four and a half star for me, mm, but I still enjoyed it very much. Interesting. And uh, Brandy, Brandy is uh, in the other room. She is. Good morning, Brandy. Yeah. So uh, it's interesting you say that because I, it, it was, I liked going back to this world, but it was like, uh, it was it was different. It was a different feeling, but but I do agree that I think it's better if you read the first trilogy, the trilogy before you get into it, because I, I think it kind of you kind of get cheated from some of the reveals, and and I I won't say what it was, but I was semi spoiled on something that happens in the book, and it wasn't a huge deal, but I wish I would have gone into it just not knowing anything. Brandy says, I love this book. Richard tells another great story. This is a five star for me, but I think the original trilogy was more than five stars. <laughs> yeah, I, I think know it's that, a, it's that's a what made bar. it really hard to rate is because it deserved five stars, but comparing it to the other three books, I couldn't. And and there were some things about this one that was way different. The tone was different than the original trilogy so if you're going into it expecting a really dark grim dark book like the first trilogy you don't get that from this so i think so part of that i don't even say disappointment just the expectations that i had going into this were different than had i gone into it not knowing anything at all like not having read the original trilogy not knowing richard mill's type of writing mm -hmm. um, i may have enjoyed it just a little bit more because i wouldn't have expected the grim dark <clears throat> atmosphere <clears throat> this is by no means a a 
light fantasy, but it isn't <laughs> nearly as dark as his other <laughs> uh, books. <clears throat> also, my disappointment was with some of the returning characters. Hmm. Um, and it, they made sense the way that they're portrayed in this book. It absolutely made sense for them, especially um, be, uh, based on the events that happened in the first trilogy. But uh, my excitement at the beginning that they were, uh, they had returned uh, was downcast as I realized what role they were going to play in the story. And so I was kind of like, Ugh. Um, but I really liked the new point of views. I liked the way Richard did that to kind of introduce us to new main characters so that you don't, you don't know what's going to happen to those returning characters. They're going to make it through the story or not because they're not a main character really in the story. So it kind of gave you that um, the high stakes feeling again, because in the original trilogy, he really, you know, you thought that certain main characters were going to make it and they didn't. And here you're like, they're not even a main character. I have no idea what's going to happen. Yeah. Although you do know something because of the epilogue in the original trilogy, mm -hmm. but not, you don't know how things are going to get to that point. But anyway, it's hard to talk about spoilers. I'm just talking in code here. <laughs> yeah, it, would be, it is tough. But I think in a way, I think this book, from a from a perspective of wanting to kind of introduce people to your world, I think it might be because it's shorter, right? It's only what two hundred or three hundred pages. So I think, in a way, I think it it's like a it can be as like an introduction or like a way to sell people to hey, this is a happens after the trilogy, and it's not as dark. So it's maybe a way for people to say, well, I'm not sure I want to commit to a six hundred page book, but I'll I'll read a three hundred page. And maybe it'll get you, it'll get you, your interest peaked enough to say, well, I want to know where these characters came from. Yeah. I want to know what happened to lead these, to these events. I'm not that kind of read. I have to start from the beginning. So, yeah. but I can see some people having that uh, perspective. Only a few times have I ever done that where I've read a book that I know is not the first book, but that's the one that interests me. Um, and every single time I've done that, I regretted it. <laughs> so. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you too. <laughs> and uh, Brandy says, I actually like that the previous characters took a back seat to the new characters. Hmm. It's not so much that they took a back seat that I had problems with. I had we have to wait to the spoilery section for me to explain what my issue was. It wasn't at all. I liked that they took a back seat because it, like I said, it made the stakes higher. Um, but there it was just something else about the characters that I, I, I like I said, it made sense for them, but. We'll have to get there when we talk spoilers. Yeah, yeah. I I did uh I, I did like learning more about the world. I think this is going to be like a long term. It, it sounds like it's just kind of going to get bigger and bigger this world. And I did like they you know we find out more about what's going on and more of the cultures and people in the world. But it was um it was it was like a different change of it was like a change of pace. It was like a, it took me a minute to kind of get get used to the new not as dark story mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah and um and to get to know the new characters right so we i think that was another thing is when you it makes sense when you don't have to build the world as much for you to have a shorter a shorter book because you don't have to build it but he had a whole new world here to build 
you know, another part of this world, I should say, a whole new culture, a whole new race of people. And he had brand new characters, not just mm-hmm. side characters that are now main characters, but totally different characters that have backstories that you don't know anything about. And so I think some of that suffered for the size of the book Hmm. um, and how quickly things, you know, progressed. Um, I think that he did a great job with pacing. There were some places that um, I think like on the ship that felt a little sluggish. Um, But as soon as I started to feel like, oh, I'm really ready for them to get off this boat, they found (laughs) land. I mean, he he timed it perfectly. I liked seeing uh, those returning characters through the eyes of, of a complete stranger, right? Somebody who didn't know anything about these characters. That was really fun for me, um, especially, so not just characters that are familiar to that world, the world that we already um, know about, but also brand new cultures that are just mm-hmm. seeing not just the the characters that are returning but seeing i mean it, it was reminiscent to when in the original trilogy when you had um the two worlds come together in the original trilogy yeah. i don't know could we spoil the original trilogy <laughs> i don't know i we'll, we'll get to we'll get to full spoilers <laughs> you know, it's it's tough um, to talk about it without talking about the rest. what did you think about the the female protagonist. So I don't think this is a spoiler, but one of your your main POVs is a female. And we had a female POV, but it, I wouldn't say it was a main character in the original trilogy. And so what did you think about having a female point of view in this? Did you think that's what kind of made it less dark? No, I think just the violence was toned down a lot. I mean, the first book starts with, I think it's not a spoiler to say because it's the first page is, you know, Ruka going, you know, mealtime on a, on a kid. So it doesn't get, it can only go up from there, you know, but I think, I don't think there was so much of that. I think it was just the, the like you said, the tone was a lot different and it was a different, it seemed like a different, there was a different goal in mind. It was more of a storytelling uh, and the world that we, well, it's hard to, to not spoil, but I, I, I don't know that that toned out too much. Cause I think, yeah, that's, I don't want to say too much. Did you think it, brought down the darkness factor it felt a little bit in some in some points a little bit um lighter um mainly her point of view because everything she was outside of a lot of the action um she was um it's just her i say she's outside a lot of the action but that's like the first two-thirds of the book and then (laughs) changes but um it made it feel, I felt when I was reading her in her point of view, it did feel a little bit lighter. Uh, the, mm-hmm. Just the character interactions were also different, um, which makes sense. Her being a female and her being a, um, a bard or, you know, storyteller um, instead of an, a warrior. So I, mm-hmm. I, but I wondered if that's, if it was the tone change was because he made a, a decision to be less violent or was the tone change because your point of views were different. You know, Ruka was a, a warrior, and so was uh, Kale in the first book. So you had two warriors and their points of views. Was the violent? Was was the tone more violent and dark? Also, the backstory for Ruka was very dark. Mm-hmm. The backstories for the main characters here are not that. Are not that. Um, so, was the tone lighter because the characters weren't as dark? 
what they were going through wasn't nearly as grim. I wonder. Hmm. I'm curious when Richard gets on to ask him, like, did the tone, did he make a decision to make it that way? Or did it develop, evolve that way because of the characters? I, I did like seeing the, 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 the compare how different cultures and how what, what different role women played in the different cultures. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was like you said, seeing that from different perspectives was cool. He's really good at that too. Uh, Brady says Richard writes a great sophomore book, so I'm looking forward to yeah to what he does next. Yeah, uh, that is one of the disappointments that I had with this one. Is I was like, now I have to wait. Yeah. <laughs> with the, the first one. trilogy, all of them were out. We were reading them back to back. It was like yes. That's the, yeah, that's the hard part. Uh, Brandon says, I love the female protagonist, but knowing that Richard take, takes chances kept me wondering when things were going to get ugly. Yeah. Do you think because the tone in this book was so light that some of the stakes or the expectations, or I should say um, lack of predictability of the first trilogy didn't really stick here? Like, I think as a reader, you went into this going, okay, anything can happen, but then there weren't really any points where you were like oh I can't believe that happened did that it for me it didn't really bother me um I don't know if it was because it was a short book you didn't feel like you were dragged you you know you were pulled along uh, fish hooked for 600 pages and you're like dang it um but it did I was on the edge of my seat a lot more than I probably would have been if I went into this not having read any of his other books yeah, I think setting the stage in the first trilogy, like you said, it you you know that anything can happen, so that it gives you this expectation that anybody could die at any point. But if I had just gone into this book, I would never really be worried about it. Like mm-hmm. I would never. But because I knew, because I know that he's not afraid to kill his characters, I had that edge of my seat. Who's going to die next, or who's going to die? Uh, kind of wondering what's going to happen next. And uh, Brandy said she did have some pretty violent moments, though. I thought she was a warrior in her own way. I feel like I still had a few moments of being surprised. Okay. Yeah, I think the... Tell us more, Brandy. Yeah, I think the surprises were more like the political intrigue and the the positioning for power. And in that sense, I was surprised a little bit. But I think like the having having a main character killed off is like a big surprise, you know? <laughs> So there were surprises, but and maybe it's just because I, I was expecting someone to, you know, something major to happen. But I have to say, I don't think it's a spoiler either. But I loved the cat, the big cat. I was like, I wanted more, the big cat. <laughs> well, I had love animal companions, so <laughs> I I uh, I don't know if you'd call that the cat an animal companion. It could have been. Could have, there was potential there. Um, yeah, kind of like um, Ruka's horse in the first trilogy. I can't remember the horse's name. I'm really bad with yeah, names. Me too. But. The big cat. Yeah, that was pretty neat. I like that. The big cat. So let's go ahead and get into spoilers. To, to spoilers. So you've all been warned. Uh if you haven't read it, don't. Uh, if you haven't read the tr- the original trilogy or Dark Seas End, now's the time to jump off. So, I I watched a video before reading this book that I shouldn't have watched. It was just a mention about the book, 
but during that mention, they talked about Ruka being back. Oh. And, that, and it, it was like, it, it, it was like real casual, like, oh, yeah, there's a, well, I don't even think they named the character. It was just a made the main character. And it's like, okay, well, I know who that is. Yeah. So it kind of was like, nah, that's a bummer. That is a bummer because I did not expect that at all. I didn't even know. I thought it was brand new, all new people. And so when Chang is being rescued from the, the jail and you and you see uh, Ika, um, I was like, oh, okay. So he's going to be in here. And then you get on the ship and it's like, oh, Enrica. I was like, what? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I know that um, Ashley was surprised because she had thought this was the um the book that takes place 300 years later mm -hmm. so there's another um book that richard nell has that she also has i can't remember that one um the god's oh. king, god king or something like that it's here somewhere it's here somewhere yeah so that one takes place 300 years after the original trilogy and so when she read that she's like what and then she realized this is this takes place right after so. <laughs> I, I do like that we see these different cultures collide again and like you see, you see the the different roles that different people play and I, I did like that there's like after what happened at the end of, of Ash and Sand there's this big transitional period that generations of people are probably lost in the shuffle of the changes that are made. So I like that it, there was these people who were like kind of floating around, not knowing what's going to happen to them after these major changes happen to their world. So I, I like that, that it, it's not like an instantaneous, oh, we're, we're at paradise, we can plant food down. It's like there's a lot of struggle that happens after that. I'm trying to get the character names up on my screen so I don't look like an idiot when we're talking. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm I'm I've I'm bad about that too. So um, the main POVs in the story, I would say, you have pretty much like three, right? Mm -hmm. You have Zaya. I don't know how you say. Is that how you say her name? That's what I would think. Um, who is Eagle's daughter? Mm -hmm. So she's a scald. Is that what they're called? This world of yeah, art. Yeah, a, sc a scald. Yeah, I think. and um, and then you have Chang, the pirate leader. <laughs> what else? He's just a pirate, right? Yeah, he's like a like a swashbuckler. Yeah, I yeah. loved him and his crew. By the way, I loved that we got. Um, that was one of the things in the first trilogy that I was a little disappointed with. Um, in the first book, is I wanted more of kale and his um the crew that he trained with mm -hmm. and so when he got separated from them and all these other events happened i was like no oh. and then he he does kind of join together with the crew again uh later in the second book but um mm -hmm. i really wanted that so in here you've got it but the crew was kind of cardboard cutouts right there wasn't mm -hmm. much to them um there's maybe a couple of them that are even really named um, so I was a little disappointed there because I, like I said, a lot of my disappointment was just because this was a short book. So a lot of what I came to expect from Richard in his world building and character development kind of wasn't as good, but where he did take the time was done 
brilliantly, right? He's just really good at those things. I just felt like he kind of said, hey, you know, I'm not going to spend as much time with um, these, you know, characters. So you you get them, they're, they have no personalities, they have no backstory, they just are. And um, he didn't really do that a whole lot in the first trilogy. Mm-hmm. You know, you knew almost everyone um, who may have only been on the page for, you know, a couple of pages um, in, in one book, and then you see them again later on, and you remember them. Mm-hmm. He didn't do that um, here. <laughs> so part of that, um, the, the stakes there, you know, there are a lot of battles. Well, I should say a lot of battles, but there are a lot of, of there are battles in this book. The stakes didn't feel as high because you didn't have a, as much of a connection to all of the characters who were involved. You only had a connection with a few. Mm-hmm. And like I said, I, Richard Nell is not one to, he's one to su- subvert expectations, but when your expectations are, hey, I just don't expect anybody to survive in this book, I'm just not even, after three books of that, I was kind of like, I I like the characters, but I wasn't, you know, I wasn't like Ruka and Kale in the first books. Yeah. And uh, Brandon said, I like that even though Zaya was different, she was still seen as beautiful. Mm-hmm. And I thought that the release of Lucky Chang and his crew from prison was reminiscent of Ruka being released by Ika from the fighting prison. Oh, yeah. I didn't even think about that. No, me either. Huh. Good catch. I didn't want that at all. Yeah. But I, um, I, I know the, you'd mentioned them, them being on the ship. And I think part of, part of the – it's hard to – to convey what it's like to travel because you, you figure you're in on a, in, a, in the ocean in the middle of nowhere and you're just seeing the same blue every day it's kind of <laughs> like being in space you know it's like you're just floating so I, I think he did convey that like you know i i can't wait to get off the ship and when they get to land they're like i can't wait to get back on the ship because <laughs> you know so they're they're wanting yeah. to get back yeah <laughs> so i thought that was pretty pretty interesting but i the the feeling of of just you know getting on a boat and just saying we're gonna go that way until we find something that must be an incredible feeling not knowing what's there yeah and i think richard nell did a really good job of of um writing the characters and um in such a way that you could feel their um i mean so the they're the lucky chang and his crew are, are it's kind of split, right? Um, they, they got released from prison, but now they're stuck on a prison yeah. <laughs> in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> so it's like, you know, I, I could have been executed or I could die here on this boat. It's like, I, did I really, did I, you know, get rescued from the pot into the fire kind of thing? <laughs> yeah. So I thought that was really well done. Um, I, I was a little frustrated. I don't know if Brandy felt this way, also being a female reader, with um, Chang and his, oh, I have to protect uh, Zaya. And so I'm going to lock her in her cabin. <laughs> I was yeah. like, what the fuck? <laughs> well, I mean, it, that, made, yeah. it made sense. It was realistic, but it pissed me off. I kind of wondered if that was him not wanting anyone else to kind of charm her or, you know, th- yeah. like a selfish in like a selfish way, like I'm going to hide her for me because I want, I want to, you know. Even though if I he can't he have knew, her, nobody yeah, can. Kind of, yeah. 
And Brandy said, I liked how on the sh on the ship, I liked on the ship how Zaya was up for anything. Sherlyn Quicken showed her spear skills that uh, she was always running towards the danger, and it was always attributed to her Ascom heritage. Yeah, I do love the way Richard writes women, mainly because they're products of their culture. Mm -hmm. They're not all superheroes, you know. Oh, oh, oh! Women have to be as strong or as um, as great as <clears throat> as all the men in the books. Mm -hmm. Hey, Richard. Hey, Hello, Richard. how are you? I was just saying what a terrible writer you were. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I can't deny it. What can I say? <laughs> I guess I should start by saying I apologize if I'm sniffling or if my nose is running. It's not because I'm so sad to join you today. I just have small children and uh, <laughs> they brought in disease. I don't know, COVID, the plague. I'm not sure what. <laughs> Yeah, Probably I'm recovering myself. So, yeah, I'm recovering myself from the plague. So, yeah. you're in, you're in, yeah. Well, I don't know if any of you are teachers or, but um, I think at school what they do is they just lick rats or something. <laughs> I, you know, like just drag their tongues along the corridors and drink like dirty creek water. I'm not sure, but they're just constantly ill. It's, it's astounding, really. Yeah. The air germ factories for sure. Yeah. <laughs> what are you gonna do? You can't. Uh, you can't kill them. You can't uh, give them away. Nobody would take them. Um, the state prosecutes you if you abandon them. So. Yeah. <laughs> you can't have any fun. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, Sorry, I've, I've, I've rudely interrupted. I'm sure. Oh, that's okay. I was just gonna say, no, yeah. Texas, we put them in the trunk of cars. Oh yeah. <laughs> Did you see that? That's amazing. That was a teacher that did that. Yes. Now you've mentioned Texas, and I'm I'm gonna have to talk about that, but I'm gonna wait. I'm gonna wait till the end of the podcast to talk about it. Okay. Are you moving to Texas, Richard? Okay, fine. I'll talk about it now. Yes, we are moving to Texas. Awesome. It's a so I guess it's a long story. The short version is my wife got a job there, and so that's mm. She's from the Philippines originally, so she's never been thrilled with the weather of uh, Saskatchewan, Canada. And uh, so she's always been on the hunt for for a job in, in a nicer climate. And I've always kind of put the brakes on, but I kind of like to live in different places. I've never lived in the States. I've lived in Australia. Um, and I so I just thought, well, all right, if we're going to do this, let's do it. And... So Texas it is. That's where she got a job. So it's a couple hours west of um, Dallas. Yeah, Dallas. Hmm. Well, it's not, not so bad. Far. The weather's a lot better up there than it is in the southern parts of the state. Well, I, I just have, it's hot. I know it's hot. Yeah. <laughs> it's hot, but it won't be as humid up, up on that part of the, the state. Right. Yeah, that's the humidity is what kills a prairie boy like me. I just can't. <laughs> Yeah. Can't take it. So I, uh, we'll see. We'll see. Oh, that's awesome. Cool. Yeah, the West Texas. There's like West Texas, like by the New Mexico border, is really flat and boring. So hopefully you're not too close. Uh, no, I mean that's. Section. I'm used to flat and boring, so that's okay. I'd be right at home. <laughs> all right. I mean, all I, the I trees, am all the trees, the Texas of Canada. That's. I was just mm -hmm. saying that, like, other than I'm going to have to learn how to say y'all and. Buy a few more guns, I think I'm going to fit right in. <laughs> yes. You 
know, but I already own several guns. All right. Like this, I don't have an accent, but I really am from the Texas of Canada. The Texas hmm. of Canada. Yeah. Nice. Well, if you need help uh, moving, let me know. I'll drive over and help you move boxes and stuff. <laughs> okay. So are you guys not that far away? Uh, I don't know where you even live. Okay. No, no I'm not too far. Pretty close to you. Okay. Mm-hmm. Wow. I'll have to come yeah. and get my book signed. Yeah. <laughs> Knocking on your door. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So dark seas end. What? What did I interrupt here? So we were um, just ta- yeah. Well, we've been talking a little bit. We just got into spoilers a few minutes ago, but. Uh, we were talking about the, uh, well, about the uh, the different cultures that were colliding in the book, and we were wondering if if writing Dark Sea's End, you wanted to make it a shorter book to make it more accessible for people who didn't want to take a chance on a long six hundred page trilogy, each book being six hundred pages. Was that a goal you had in mind when you started writing it? Yeah, absolutely. It, it was sort of. Um... I mean, I was trying to do multiple things at once. One was kind of like a gateway drug. You know, I, I'm i trying to also expand the series so that if, if you're a fan of the Action Zen series, you can continue this story and enjoy it. But also if you're new to the entire series, you can start this and it's a bit more accessible. It's not quite as dark, um, but faster paced. So you can sort of jump in, and then you, if you like that, then you can go back and start the original series. With only the penalty of knowing that there are certain characters who are alive, you know. So yeah. there's that problem, but what are you going to do? So much changed. <laughs> Which yeah. I think is interesting, because if you're reading this book for the first time, um, and you know that Ruka is a character in the others, then seeing who he is here makes you wonder what what made him this way. He's That's got all these powers. Mm-hmm. He can do all this stuff, but he's so different. I mean, we know him as being different, but he's melancholy. He's, you know, he's, you wonder what happened to the warrior that everybody is claiming he was, the, the god tongue, the... Mm-hmm. Um, uh, sorcerer, all these <clears throat> things that he's being, you know, people are making, uh, alluding to, and you're like, who, who, who was this person before? So I think that was well done because definitely if I had not read, the, I would have been intrigued by um, what, what he went through to get to be the where he is. But having read the original trilogy, I was kind of, I understood that we we know what he went through we know why he is the way he was but i was getting frustrated with him and his pacifism <laughs> maybe that's the texas in me <laughs> yeah well i would say at least there's a moment at the end um you said you're in spoilers here. well that stops yeah. at some point uh, so yes there is a payoff at least to that that frustration yeah <laughs> yeah but yeah i, I, I was it. curious how people it was tough to find people who had never read the first trilogy to read this mm. and, and give me their feedback because most people in my world have read the first books. So, and of course I have am intimately familiar with the first book. So you're always trying to put yourself in the shoes of someone who's brand new to it and how they would approach it. So that was the goal. And I would say there's also an element of just, I was trying to, to expand my own repertoire a little bit by trying to do something that was mm. a more, adventure story 
I'm always trying to do new things. I'm, I'm trying to, you know, I think of writers as craftspeople, you know, and you've got to improve your craft by writing new types of things. And so, yeah, that's partially what I'm trying to do. And when you're a writer or I guess maybe an artist of any kind, there's a, it's a bit annoying because when you do something and you've done it in a way that people like, what they sort of want you to do is that forever, you know, and, and you're, yeah. but, but you think, <laughs> well, I've done that time to move on to the next. And they're like, no, no, I liked what you do the other thing. And in a way they're not even, it's not even true. Like um, there's sort of a, I don't mean this in a contemptuous way or judgments away, but in a way people don't know what they want. Like if you, there's no way you would ever, um, what's the word I'm looking for? You couldn't get people to sit in a room and, uh, come up with, we want Star Wars, right? Nobody ever could have focus grouped Star Wars. Um, so people don't know that, like, wow, I, this was amazing. And it's no, George Lucas was passionate about this. He didn't care what anybody thought, and he did it. And then people read it and they thought, wow, this is amazing. So he, it's tough. You're in a difficult situation. I also think of, uh, oh, who's the guy who wrote Sherlock Holmes? Um, anyway, Conan Doyle. thank you, Arthur Conan Doyle. He tried to kill Sherlock Holmes off. That's what the, the Moriarty story came from because he was so sick of writing those stories. Mm. And so he killed Sherlock Holmes and everybody was like, you son of a bitch, you bring back Sherlock Holmes. And it, it was so much pressure. He did. He's like, all right, fine. And he just wrote it until he died. You know, he just. And they weren't nearly as good. No. The Return of Sherlock Holmes, if you ever get to read them, Steve, just stop after the first well, but you can sure. see, you can see he lost the passion. You know, he just yeah. didn't have it. Yeah. Anyway, so there's there's an element of that where I'm I'm trying to expand the uh, the repertoire. So it is a different style. It's more of an adventure story. It's, but I'm still trying to bring in. I don't know. You can tell me if this was succeeding or not. But I'm trying to keep the epic feel a little bit and the the world feel. And I'm saying, look, these characters are not gone. Um, you know, I don't know how well it worked. But but that's what I was trying to do. A lot of things in one in one package. Hmm. And uh, Brandy said, I think a lot of it gets explained about Ruka through Zaya's perspective, and she said that she loves that it was different. Yeah. Well, I, I know. Kind of feel sure, go ahead. Um, like you were saying in an adventure story. I I was reading it and I was like, you know, this kind of reminds me of something. And and then I rem I was I don't know I was doing something else and I was like, oh, Treasure Island. This kind of reminds me of Treasure mm. Island. I mean, it's a much better story than Treasure Island, but it has that pirate, you know, adventure. Um, but it it was done so much better, and it's a much more interesting story. But I mean, Treasure Island is a classic, but um, everybody reads it because it's a classic, not because it's good. <laughs> yeah. To be to be fair, to be classic, you've got to have something going for you. Um, anyway. It was new. I think a lot of classics are are really great because of the novelty of them, not necessarily because they were they were done well. They were done well, well for the time. Competition was less, well. that's for sure. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I was just talking to someone the other day about Moby Dick, saying, you know, ten percent of Moby Dick is brilliant, and then ninety percent of Moby Dick is what on earth is this? Um, <laughs> I might be being a little harsh with 90%, but, but, you know, it's funny because there's, you know, the, the oft quoted line, the first line of call me Ishmael, right? That's, that's part of the 10% where it's, it's incredible character work, 
where he's he's telling you about these some of these characters, particularly Ishmael and some of his uh, colleagues, let's say, so quickly and so effectively with little amounts of dialogue and and little amounts of how other characters react to them. But huge amounts of that story is, let me tell you about whales. Um, you know, and just all kinds of tangents and nonsense that you're just, as you're in the midst of it, you're thinking, how on earth is this so famous? Uh, yeah, interesting. So, yeah, so there you go, Americans who think that it's the greatest novel in the history of the world. I'm shitting on it. That's right. Well, so don't get me started on class. I love to read classics, but I don't have a great uh, record with them. So it's hit or miss. And I, I keep reading them because there are those hits. Yeah. And, you know, then well, I can also, you know, go to parties and say, I read that. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I, I am an English literature student. So I'm speaking from a place of experience. That there are a great many classics, which, you know, we all, we sort of stand on the shoulders of giants. There's a great deal of genius there without which I would be mute. There's no question. But uh, there's a lot of scrap. There's a lot of stuff that can just be, carved off you know and the gems come out but uh it's a different world now yeah and uh brandon so i thought you pulled it off it worked great for me and i kept thinking about about black sales have you seen that oh, show yeah. i've seen that show my god the soundtrack that mm -hmm. i love the song to black sale i don't remember the story hardly at all i remember <laughs> the song uh, but i remember it being good and I they're sort of I don't remember the it's like Robinson Crusoe sort of a like they they use Long John Silver and they're, I don't remember all the characters but uh, I don't know they, they use some real pirates and some fake pirates I don't know what they're doing. <laughs> when Brandy felt that way about Dracula, it was man, yeah, yeah, yeah. I hardly remember that too. Um, yeah, but it is so. To, I guess to go back to Dark Seas End. Yes, it, I, I'm glad you got that feel. It is is that kind of a story so um and if you are disappointed that ruka was not a pov character just wait i think we also we well at least brandy and i specifically said we liked that he he took a back seat it wasn't even really a back seat i mean he was literally in most of uh of, of zaya's point of view um but um, I think it helped because you got to learn. I felt like it was going to be the next generation of the story, right? You brought Ruka in to kind of pull in the, the uh, fans of the first trilogy, but here's a whole new generation of heroes you're going to follow. That's how it felt to me, and I loved that. I was just frustrated with Ruka because when I saw, when he when I was surprised that he was in the story, I wanted the Ruka from book one. <laughs> and, um, and he was different, and that I'm not complaining because he, it made sense. I mean, his character is so dynamic and I love that. It's just, there were times where I was frustrated because I was like, man, will you just go chop some heads off already? Help this guy out here. <laughs> but he did. And you stood by that up until the point that it made sense for him not to do that anymore. And I mean, it, it was brilliant. I just wish it was longer, Richard. You know, it's funny. I think it's 100,000 words or so. I, I can't remember now. Um, you know, the average novel is about 70,000 words. <laughs> so it's funny because people are like, well, I hear that opinion a lot. Why isn't it longer? I'm like, it's already pretty long. 
I mean, it's just about the average reader here. Yeah, yeah. So epic fantasy has uh, has a tendency to be quite long, but uh, uh, yeah. I, look, I'm trying to sh shorten my novels a little bit and put more out. All right. Um, All right. When are we going to get the next one? Well, well, I in my perfect world, I'm putting out two books this year, but that wow. that might be amb ambitious. I I was supposed to be doing this quick little palate cleansing project and it just it refuses to end. But mm. as as one anyone could know by my many bad habits, I am not a quitter. So I am going to finish this goddamn project. <laughs> um, and I don't care if it kills me. Um, so so once that but I am working on book two already in the Beyond Ash and Sand series. I already know how the story is going to end, basically. Hmm. Uh, I already know most of the plot beats. I'm already kind of excited about it. There's quite a lot going on. I am very, I'm just itching to spoil it right now. <laughs> um, but Ruka will be a POV character and quite a major one. So he, he's probably, he's sort of, if you look, if you think of this story, this first book, you've sort of got Yaket, um, Chang, and Zaya. This next story, you're going to have Yaket. Chang and Zaya will be sort of be together and then Ruka. So he's a third of the book. Okay. Hmm. Oh, I'm glad we're going to get more uh, of Yaka because um, I'm really interested to know what these or how he's going to catch these like shadow thingies, whatever the heck they are. I'm really, that's, <laughs> yes. well, that's going to be fun. Have either of you read the, um, I guess I could point at it, the God King's legacy. That's I have not. It's it's on my February list. Okay. Well, that will help you a little bit one day when you get there. Um, okay, this, downloading now. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So this is this is all part of the same world. Um, so if I were to describe the God King's legacy, um, I'll just mention a couple of things. One. The, the premise of the, the one of the main magical or the fantasy elements of the story is that there are sort of these knights and these knights have these shadow demons inside of them. Mm. Um, and they all have sort of magic powers based on these shadow demons that are inside of them. So that is the, the fantasy element of the story. That may sound somewhat familiar to you. Um, so that's one thing I'll say. And then maybe another thing I'll say is that the God King, his name is Marson. His last name is Marson. Now, I don't know if you remember anything from the Dark Sea's end here, but Yaket is from the house of Mar. Mm -hmm. So the son of Mar. So uh, there's, there's some, there's history between these books and those books. Those books mm -hmm. take place about 300 years um, beyond Ash and Sand. Um, so, I'm. Well, I guess what I'm saying is it's not idle. It's there's 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 reasons for everything that's happening here, um, and there's a plan. One day I'll get to it. Uh, there's like three books between now and then, so I don't know. God help me. <laughs> well, I'm definitely looking forward to it. And everybody said I'm most conflicted with Yaket's wife. I really liked her and the love that they had, but I was so mad at her for her willingness to sacrifice her son, but at the same time understanding her loyalty to her culture. 
Yeah, I mean, it's culture is powerful. Mm. Uh, you know, and there's a few lines from Ruka, especially when he really challenges Yakut, and he says to him, "You know, you you're sort of wandering around this place like you've got no choice." And he's saying, "You do have a choice, and you've made a choice. Don't act like you haven't." And he, he's saying, "You know, here's your culture, and this is what it's saying." And you have chosen loyalty to your culture over loyalty to your blood, essentially. Mm -hmm. And he's saying that's you know that's okay. You're allowed to make that choice. Your every man has a choice, as Ruka as often likes to say. Just don't act like you didn't. You know, it's uh, hypocrisy has always made Ruka angriest. Yes. Hmm. And and so that's what he sort of is saying, saying you know, and and don't act as if you don't have a duty as well to your child. You do. And it goes back before your culture. It goes back before words themselves, um, as he says. And so he's trying to convince him, I suppose, in a way to, to you're making the wrong choice. Make a better one, you son of a, <laughs> you know, so I guess we see what he does. And, and that is what, you know, had he not done that, maybe Ruka would have let things play out. I'm not sure. You did. I did wonder when it was after I finished the book. Like, okay, well, to save one kid, all this other, all these other things happen. It's like, what's, what's worse? Mm -hmm. I don't know. I was. I will say that was one of the points in which I was like, oh, mm -hmm. I, I struggled with. Um, it made sense for Yaka to want to save his son, but then I felt, and maybe I just didn't read it right it happens i may not have gotten the intention out of it that you intended but it felt like he was a little blase about his wife and other kids as mm -hmm. he was escaping it's like oh they're somewhere over there you know i hope they're okay <laughs> so it's like you, you just did all this so it to me it felt more like his son saving his son was an excuse for him to be like oh i'm done with this and you're all evil yeah i think that's fair i think I think you could make the case, certainly, that he essentially had written off his his people. That he'd said, you know, anyone who agrees with this religion is sort of my enemy now. Mm -hmm. There's no saving you. You know, I'm, I think maybe by the very end of the book, like in that moment, I would say that's kind of how he felt. And then by the end of the book, when he's he's going back to hunt down the demons, I think he's kind of not quite as as extreme as that anymore he's changed his mind a little bit he, but i think in that moment at least he's sort of struck by the the horror of the moment and he's thinking anybody who's on board with this is just is too far gone and, and can't well, i think he reached a point where he he felt like he could reason with them right you know, he even asked to sacrifice himself in, in lieu of his son. So when they, when his father was like, no, it has to be this way. It's almost like, but you don't really care about the sacrifice. You care about what the priests want and your, your loyalty to them and not to your people. And I think that frustration is what it felt like. That was what had pushed him over the edge. And it's almost like an adrenaline rush, right? At the time, he's just going on instinct that these are, this is the way he feels this is what has to be done. And every action after that is on instinct. And then afterwards, you know, he gets his son safe. It's like the adrenaline dissipates and he's like, what have I done? 
now I have to fix this. And it, it just, that's the brilliant, the parts of the, your character writing is as a reader, we may be going, God, it doesn't make sense. What is this dude doing? And then you realize the humanity of that you've instilled in the characters to the point where they make decisions that don't make sense to us as a reader at the time. They don't even make sense to the character at the time. And, but you don't just leave it there for the reader to go, okay, well, I guess that's just the way it is. It, it, you come full, full circle to, and it, and it just is brilliant. Well, I'm, I'm glad it comes across that way. I, when I think of people, I always ask, what is a person's base nature? And, you know, Yaket has even recognized his. He doesn't like it. But what he realizes, you know, when he's quite young, is that he likes winning and he likes killing. You know, he's sort of the classic warrior archetype. He, he loves to fight and kill his enemies, you know. He, and he doesn't care why and he doesn't care. It's just a, you know, alpha male kind of dominance. Um, that, that is his kind of base nature. And in a way, he's a very good character in, in because that he, he doesn't agree with that. He, he knows that that's wrong or he feels that that's wrong and he wants to overcome it. And he, he despises himself a little bit for that base nature. And But when the chips are down, you know, we're not rational creatures. It's too bad. I wish we were, but we're not. And so <laughs> when, when he's brought to the moment where everything is insanity and chaos and, and everybody's out to get him. And he just thinks, well, okay, this is what I am. I won't go quietly. I'm going to fight whoever comes at me to the death and reasons be damned. It doesn't matter who's right or who's wrong. I'm, I'm going to survive. I'm going to win. And I think, I think that's kind of the moment he finds himself in when, when everything goes tits up. <laughs> And Ruka is kind of the same way, right? What is Ruka and his base nature? Yeah. He, he sees they are about to kill this little boy. He's sort of a, he's a bully killer, you know? Ruka mm -hmm. wants the justice. He wants, he's sort of like Yaket in a way. He's sort of an alpha who just thinks, I will, you know, Bukayag is the dominator, you know? But, but Ruka himself just thinks, no, I, he's an ideologue, you know? He thinks, you're, I'm not going to let you kill that little boy. I'm not going to let you do something unjust and damn the consequences. You know, he's not a utilitarian. He's not, he's not thinking, do you let 10, 15, 10 or 15 people die to save uh, 50? Is that better? He doesn't care about that. He thinks, no, this is wrong. And, and it doesn't matter what I have to do, you know, to, to make it right. And so, that's that's sort of who he is at the end of the day, though he doesn't he doesn't particularly like that about himself maybe either or he's always he's always questioning that because he sees horrifying consequences to his actions in the past and and he's he's made a promise at the end of Kings of Heaven when Kale saves him he says I won't shame you with my deeds I don't know if you remember this is something mm -hmm. that he sort of says and so your frustration with Ruka this is always in his mind now. He's thinking, I don't want to shame Kale. I don't want him to have saved me. And then I go out and I do these terrible things that he would not have wanted me to do because that's, I've broken my oath is sort of how he's, he's thinking that. And, and so that is part of why he, 
let's say, is more passive. Uh, but I, I guess what I would say is, do we think that Ruka can maintain that in the future? No. Chances are no. He Again, what is he? What is he at the end? Can he stand by and watch these things happen? Probably he can't, right? He just probably can't do it. He's the hammer. <laughs> well, we are what we are, I suppose. Yeah. And Brandy says, I think that kind of, I think that the rest of his family might be alive somewhere. I don't know. I kind of, I don't, I don't think they're, I don't think they made it, but I guess we'll find out. I think it's something that we're, I, I hope they are, at least his children. I don't know so much about his wife. That's <laughs> awful for me to say. She really, <laughs> yeah, I, I'm with Brandy on that. As a mother myself, it's like, how, how did you give up so easily? If, if it were, you know, I would have been gone. I would have had my kids. I would have been out of there. Well, I, I think but, to them it's normal, though. It's it's yeah. their, it's become it's the norm for the, us. It's barbaric, but for them it's yeah. Saturday night. Yeah. But it's hard for for me to read that, and and I understand it because it's the world I'm reading. But it's really hard for me as a as a reader to. I was very. I didn't. Well, she became a villain in my eyes. <laughs> yes. Well, we we judge people harshly, but we know where would she go? What would she right? do? How would she stop it? And she has other children, and so you know you have to think of your other children, and you. So it, it's a real problem. There's just. Uh, I don't want to get too dark here, but uh, you know I spend a lot of time reading about the great tragedies, especially of modern history. And um, there's there's some good books out there. One is called Ordinary Men, which is about the uh, group of police officers in, in Germany in sort of the Nazi era. And these are not Nazi members. These are not Hitler youth. These are middle-aged men who have not been indoctrinated, you know, into the, into the thing. But they go from being sort of normal police officers who you would trust to watch your children or take care of your property or, you know, good neighbors, good men to shooting pregnant women in fields. Oh, God. Um, and, and they do that. Sometimes the reasons are, are reasons that'll make your heart break like brotherhood. They're thinking, look, I don't want to do this, but I'm not going to leave my brothers to do all the dirty work. You know, it's part of my duty to do this so that they don't have to. So just think about that. Here's this man who's doing this awful, awful thing. And his reasons are reasons that are almost heroic. Um, so people can find themselves in incredibly terrible situations. And you might think, well, just don't do it. Well, if he doesn't do it, maybe he'll be shot. Maybe his whole family will be shot. Maybe, his, you know, who knows what will happen. So it, it's it's just unbelievable, the, the, the power of culture and the power of... Uh, um, the a person's environment, and anyway, it's unbelievable. Speaking of culture, what made you choose this? Um, I mean, you could you could see uh, Mayan and Inca inspiration here. What made you go that route? Yeah, that's a good question. Well, partially, I I just love the different cultures, and this is an underused one, I would say. Um, so that's part of it. I. I read a book, just an amazing book, and I'm going to forget his name now, Bernard Castillo, I think. 
it is a firsthand account from a Spanish conquistador who, who served with Cortes. And actually, he was, he was in Mexico um, and other places before Cortes. Um, and his, this guy's life story is absolutely unbelievable. And he tells, he, he, he's written this when he's an older man. And he's sort of, uh, he's annoyed that some of the other academics and so on who have written of the conquest. And he's saying, these people don't know what the hell they're talking about. Let me tell you how it really went down. And it's a very famous work now. And it used as one of the main history books of, of the time. And unlike some of the propagandists of the time, this guy's story is incredibly matter of fact. You know, he doesn't, he doesn't make the Spanish soldiers look good. He doesn't make Cortez look good though he admires him and he's very proud of their accomplishments and so on. He's, he's a conquistador after all. Um, but he, he, I read this book and the history of the uh, people and the detail that he gives was just so unbelievable to, to me that I knew I had to include it um, in a, in a book going forward. And I was so struck by the story. And so some of the details of this story are plucked again, right out of history. And um, even the notion that, um, they have there's a mythology that there will be people who come from the east that's right out of the actual uh, beliefs of of um of these cultures they really did and one of the reasons that the conquistadors were so successful is that a great deal of the cultures there had a belief that there was going to be people who came from the east and changed their world hmm. and so there was a huge amount of receptivity to them saying like, oh, these, this is the myth. This is the people coming to change the world. And, and so they were able to get much further than they would have otherwise probably because of that. Wow, that's interesting. And yeah. so that's one piece of the puzzle. And I would say that the other piece of the puzzle is that I was kind of, uh, I don't know, I was very interested. How do you get a culture? I mean, I, I always, I, I don't want to get myself in trouble here, but the, the Aztec culture and some of the cultures around there, if I were to pick some of the most barbaric yet civilized cultures in the history of mankind, they've got to be one of the nominations. Um, mm -hmm. their, their treatment of people who were not part of their culture was, was so unbelievable. And for so long, um, they they essentially groomed. So this is you know when we're talking about the other tribes that, that end up helping to invade these these city states. Again, that's right out of real history. I mean, when we think of the Aztecs, we think, well, it was just the Aztecs. No, they were surrounded by other cultures, and every single one of them hated them because they were literally groomed and and um, treated like almost like livestock. You know, the, the Aztecs would go around to these other people, capturing them and taking them as slaves and literally fat, fattening them up because they would eat them as well. Oh, wow. yes. Oh, yeah. And they would put them in cages and fatten them up. So so the, the sacrifices of these people around them, part of their culture was a warrior plundering, capturing culture. So they wanted rather than rather than, say, conquer them and make them part of their own empire. Right. Which is what they could have done. They said, no, we want them on the outskirts of our culture so that it gives us an opportunity to send our princes out on a, on a glorious capture and raiding and to take them back to their temples and sacrifice to their gods. And so it became, that was very much a choice. 
and so they were so awful to these surrounding cultures that when the conquistadors showed up and they said you know who's the king around here they said oh yeah the you know the people who live in the valley the city states they said oh well we're going to go over there and if and if we get in a fight you know can we count on you and they said hell yes you can you know every tribe around the aztecs said yes we will fight for you and against them anytime anywhere just tell us when and so the actual attack on the the city of whatever you know, Tecnotitlan, i can't pronounce it there was a couple of thousand spanish conquistadors and there was about eighty thousand native troops wow so that tells you something doesn't it and the the this, the uh, native troops they did all the logistics they brought everything that they you know they they helped in, absolutely do everything because they were completely against this this culture that had terrorized them for literally hundreds of years so i wanted to understand how did this culture become like that because they were very civilized they were very advanced um, you know, their technology was impressive. So how did that happen? And and they had kind of two religions. I'm going on forever now because I'm just so interested in, the, in this stuff. They had sort of the old religion and the new religion. And the new religion was was the, the nasty one. And I could see parallels even between their new religion and the new religions of modern civilization, where you can see how a civilization can get overtaken by these new religions, whether it's Germany or whether it's communism or whether it's uh, anything like that. And it, it's just so fascinating to me. So I, hmm. I was trying to explore it both in the context of uh, sort of the Aztecs and, and that. And, and I guess in a way I'm reflecting on modern society and how can these ideas overtake us? You know, because I think we're still susceptible to such things. Oh, yeah. yeah, I did catch that. I, I felt that mirror mirroring that you had there um, about what and because we see it every day. And I think all of us kind of marvel at it's like how how are these uh, how do, for example, the Nazi Germany, how do those people just give in to that? How come nobody stood up to it? You know, why did it take, you know, um, America, I, I hate to say that because it wasn't just America that stood, but it took outside forces to come in to to tear that down. And then you had so many people going, you know, I was just kind of going along because it was either that or die um, or my family would be killed. And it's just like, wow, how does it get like that? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's interesting that I when I was reading mm -hmm. that, I was like, that was very fascinating. But it's neat to see that this wasn't it wasn't just you adding modern commentary onto it but it was actually a thing that you were mirroring that it actually happened and you could feel that we see we see that today in modern history yes well and i you know again I don't, it's not maybe not a subject worth too much exploration right now but i there's a lot of people who say they don't want to see politics in their in their fiction and i think when they say that what they really say is they don't want to see current politics in their fiction mm -hmm. you know what i'm saying i don't mm -hmm. want you to try and make a propaganda case i don't want you to try and convince me to become a republican or a democrat in the american sense or a globalist or a nativist or a so i don't do that i don't like that i completely concur with such people who say that we don't read fiction to have people preach at us but i think what fiction is wonderful at doing is exploring uh, ideas in sort of a safe place to use the um, so that we can think well they're just people they're just people 
uh, in the same way that we're people and they have the same forces that are on them. And I'm, I'm very careful not to, to preach at anyone at any time. So, but I really want to explore the things that are still relevant to us today. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I'm not a political creature. I hate politics as a general rule. So for me, it's philosophy, it's culture. That That's what I'm exploring. And um, yeah, uh, it's just funny how you, you hear people say that. And then you hear other people who say, everything is politics. And, <laughs> and I, I just shake my head. I think everything is politics. You know, um, if you're on a desert island with your family, is that politics? You know, it's, to people, people who think everything is politics, you think politics came before culture? You think politics came before survival? Do you think lions have politics? Jackals? I mean, it's just such a joke to me. Very true. Uh, Brandy says also the architecture of the Mar people was beautifully beautifully described, and could see the Mayan and Aztec influence there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I did have a very vivid picture in my mind of that temples and the culture. Yeah, well, and I just because I said if I was nominating some of the nastiest cultures in the human history, I, just so I'm, I don't want to be shown to be just shitting on these people. I'm, I love this culture. It's an amazing culture. It's just that sort of like the Comanche or something. And um, it's, mm. there's, there's an element to it that is, on the one hand, you could call the Comanche the freest people who have ever existed in the, uh, human history. On the other hand, they were free to be complete barbarians and, Anytime they took another tribe over, the tribe just assumed they would all be killed. Hmm. Um, you know, that was the expectation. So life is complicated. And um, so, <laughs> people, again, they were very civilized. They had incredible <laughs> culture. They had these amazing technology. They had this, this city built on a lake. I mean, it, it's, it's mind-boggling. They had... Um, agriculture that would have made many of the uh, other cultures in the world at the time look pathetic and barbarous in comparison. They, the, the ability they had to move water, um, the structures they were able to build, just incredible. And even even they sort of get maligned a little bit for their their sort of poor ability in war. Like how were these conquistadors able to deal with them? Because they fought differently. It wasn't they weren't trying to fight to kill, as I say. They were trying to capture. And so they, they treated the conquistadors as almost like a joke. They weren't worried about them. They weren't trying to kill them, really. They were just trying to win and, and be the best capturer and, you know, win the most glory. And, and by the time they actually took them seriously, it was too late. Hmm. Yeah. 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 I love history in fantasy. Yes, yeah, so do oh, I, yeah. as you can yeah. tell. <laughs> Well, so many uh, fantasy, I think this is changing a lot um, recently, but so much fantasy has always been based on European history. And recently, in the, I'd say the last 10 years or so, you, you're seeing a lot more authors exploring different cultures in different areas. In some cases, creating completely new places that don't exist like Brandon Sanderson. And that's great. And it boggles my mind every time something new comes out. It's like, wow, I never even thought about, you know, Mayan culture, fantasy. And it's just like there's so much history out there that that uh, writers can can uh, take and use. And it just makes the fantasy genre have so much more potential. I, I just wish more um, traditionally published <laughs> books would take that risk because you just 
don't see it as often. I mean, a lot of times you see these great fantasies that come out and they started as self-published before they became traditionally published. And it, you know, um, I think Rowan Horse, uh, the author Rowan Horse, I can't remember her first name. She um, wrote a, a, recently wrote a fantasy book that takes place in, uh, I can't remember if it was the Aztec or Mayan, but it's a sci-fi it kind of plays on, I haven't read it, but it kind of plays on um, the, I believe the gods of that time were more like an alien uh, race. And I thought that, I think that idea is really um, interesting, but it's, that's the only one I could think of that even touches on this culture. So I thought it was fascinating to read. Yeah. Well, it's, end. it's just very hard to do. That's part of the problem. And it's sort of like why I don't write historical fiction. It's too damn hard. Um, you have to know a lot and you have to be careful. And you, you know, whereas with fantasy, I'm like, it's historical ish. I don't have, I don't have to be perfect. I don't have to cite my sources. You know, I don't, I can just kind of do what I want. So that's. Did they have rice fields in Mexico? Mm, they do here. <laughs> How exactly did they do this, you know, farming? I don't know. This is close enough. Um, whereas if you do, if you write a historical fiction book and you do something wrong, you're about to get a letter. Yeah. You know? yeah. Somebody's like, you son of a bitch. This is how they did it. You don't know anything. Let me, you know, like, ah, oh, Whereas with fantasy, I get away with anything. Anytime somebody says, no matter on which side of the fence, if somebody says, you literally just ripped off this culture, I'm like, yep. What are you going to do? Uh, or they say, you didn't do this culture correctly. It's fantasy. Doesn't matter. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's why I read fantasy. It's lazy, basically. But <laughs> but still, if you if you write, if you really pay attention to history and you want to be interested in these things, it's much harder if you just, if you just make things up, um, you know, that's, that's kind of easier in a way. I don't know. I guess it's, it's sometimes it's easier to draw from things that already exist because then you don't have to make it up. Right? Um, so that's, it's a bit of a life hack for, for a writer, you know, you just, why make it up when I can just steal it? Um, on the <laughs> other hand, I, I am obsessed with history. So it's a way for me to engage in my passion, you know, uh, and, and just sort of share that with other people. So, I think that's that's the best way to create art is to take something you're passionate about and then explore it. Hmm. And uh, Yolene wanted me to tell you that she liked the enemies to lovers portion of the uh, of the story. Okay, good. Yeah, yeah I don't know. I'm a, attempting to be a burgeoning romance writer. Maybe I, I keep bringing. <laughs> that's where the money is. I got to practice. Yeah. I did like that romance, the romance there. Well, it's going to be in the next book too. Hmm. For sure, I'm sure Brandy liked it. Without liked it. without spoiling things, a great deal of the story. Well, Ruka's portion of the story is going to be in the Isles, and uh, a something that the fans have wanted for a long time may have the chance of occurring. Do you have a title for the second book yet? No, I don't. I, I, you know, I wish there was a follow-up. I wish there was more to say than that. Yeah. I think I spitballed a little bit, but now I already forget because I'm so deep in this other project. I, hmm. 
I don't know. Is there anything outside of this project? Maybe not. I only ask because your titles sometimes can give hints. It's something that, you know, as I was reading the Ash and Sand trilogy, it's like, okay, after reading the first book, you get some idea of where, why it's called Kings of Paradise. So then you, you can make some like predictions as to what the second one was going to be back. So <laughs> that's why I asked. Cause then I could be like, Ooh, what's going to happen? Yeah. Yeah. You want to say hi? Mm. I've got my four-year-old standing here. Oh, cool. Yeah. Are you shy? Yeah, she's shy. <laughs> <laughs> well, hello anyway. Yeah. I've got a green screen behind me here, which is why I'm not actually sitting in front of this majestic bookshelf. <laughs> this is out at my family farm um, that I took a picture of. I'm I am in the basement as usual. Oh, okay. <laughs> That's smart, taking a picture of your book, bookshelf so you. Yeah, well, this is what I grew up with, all these yellow. These are National Geographics. We we pretty much had every National Geographic since, I don't know, I must have been 10 years old, and we got them for 10 years. We had every month, for, and I've read them all. Um, when I was young, there, there wasn't much but books. You know, you, when you're from a farm in Canadian Texas, um, <laughs> You've got to do what you've got to do, basically. So books were my thing. So other than the library, my place for reading was my grandmother's house. And her bookshelf was much less like the one behind you with National Geographics and uh, Encyclopedia Britannica and mm. Reader's Digest. <laughs> Nothing wrong with Reader's Digest. My mother had Reader's Digest as well. <laughs> I read many books. I had no idea. I was only reading parts of books. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know what abridged meant until I was much older. Yeah, that's cool. <clears throat> we all have our things like that. Yeah. And um, I, we, we talked a little bit about uh, about this before you jumped on, but we were talking about the fact that all these changes happen after Ash and Sand, and you didn't shy away from these maybe a generation or two that are just stuck in the middle that kind of get lost on the shuffle all these changes happening and all of a sudden they're kind of stuck during this transitional period and they don't have they don't know what to do with themselves or they're kind of lost in in the rest of the events that are going on so i thought that wasn't that was interesting seeing that there's these positive changes happening but with all these changes you're going to have those that are just lost in the shuffle that just kind of end up floating for a while yes i don't really have a follow-up to that either yeah I, uh, I don't know. Again, the urge to spoil things is very strong. And um, sometimes I resist it and sometimes I don't. Um, this time I'm going to try. Okay, because I, I want to ask, but I don't want to know. And I want to know, but I don't want to know. Well, I mean, we know from the epilogue in Kings of Heaven that there's some things that have to happen. You know, mm -hmm. Ruka has to build a fortress on the border from Naran and the Tong. So... That's going to happen in this series. Uh, how does it happen? There's some questions. Um, and there's some other illusions in Kings of Heaven epilogue. For example, they, the historian mentions another uh, battle. Um, mm -hmm. I don't know if people caught that or not, but he's, he said that there's a battle between the false, the false sons. So there's going to be a new emperor of Naran who has a fight with Ruka essentially and uh, 
So that's a thing that has to happen. How you did that? Because I think everybody who read the third book was like, "Okay, so this is this is how it ends. It's over." And it's like, "Nope." Let well, me I mean, tell you a story. <laughs> no, well, it's sort of it's one thing I regret it, at the end of the epilogue in that book. I wish I had done a little bit more to ease the passing. I. Mm. I, I would have had Ruka say a couple of more things and maybe I'll even edit the book at some point where, uh, because there was, there were some things, um, there were some <laughs> things that happened. I may have to deal with this shortly. Yeah. Uh, there were some things that happened in the books where there was a repeating um, sort of refrain that Ruka says that, that every man's story or every story ends in death. And, uh, you know, Eagle sort of says something about it. And Ruka says something about it a couple times where he's saying, well, how does it end? How does it end? And he says, well, how every story ends in death. And so uh, to me, the, I had to show Ruka's story. Of course, everyone dies, right? But but I could have eased it a little bit more than I did to make the reader just feel like, oh, it, of course, we knew it was coming. It's okay. Um, and ultimately he dies at like 77 or something like that. He, you know, whereas at the end of the epilogue or the end of the story, he's, you know, he's in his thirties. So there's 35, 40 years left to play with. Um, and I, I guess one reason that I was able to finish the story is I'm trying to say that his, his main story of, of how he changes as a character is over. You know, he's not he's not going to become a radically different person from the end of the epilogue to the to the end of his, however many stories they go forwards in the future. Right. But that doesn't mean that he doesn't do anything else. If that makes sense. So now you have to you have to run and take care of your of your children, but of your germ factories. But uh, do you feel pressure because you have people like us who are obsessed with the series? Do you ever feel like. I have to get this right or do you just say i'm going to do what i want to do and if, you know whatever happens happens uh no i don't i don't worry i put enough pressure on myself i guess <laughs> is the answer to that um i i come across as kind of a probably i assume a somewhat go lucky guy who's not worrying too much about this but that's not true i am obsessive and so I do care what people think and say, and I, I really like thoughtful reviews. I really like to hear what people have to say because there's so often uh, the perspectives from other people will, will illuminate something I didn't think of, or I, you know, I often say in art, there's what you are trying to do. There's what you think you did and what you actually did. And it's hard to know what you actually did. It sometimes takes other people to say, that's not what you did here. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, this is the read that I have. And let me, you know, how you communicated it was not what you think you communicated. So it's very interesting to me here to hear that from other people. Um, do you hear that dinging in the background? I assume you do. <laughs> yeah. yeah, great. We, um, we both have children as well. We know how to ignore things. No, yeah, don't worry yeah. about it. Yeah, I, I just tune all that stuff out. Um, what the hell was I saying? So I am always worried about that. I'm always trying to perfect what I'm doing and not that you can ever perfect it, but to really get what I'm trying to get across, across. And I know that if I, if I do that, then readers will like it or they won't. But the, the people who, who really are on board, the people who understand what I'm doing, 
I know they'll like it if I if I get that right, um, because I'm happy with it, and I, you know, I I know that they will be basically, but uh, you know, I I know there's writers who really struggle with this. I just read an or I listened to an interview with Will White. I don't know if you know who that is the mm-hmm. Cradle series. Yeah, and he he just put out a book like I think his tenth book in this series or something, and he said he was just about having panic attacks. Like he was. He was super anxious. He was breaking down because he didn't think it was doing what he thought it would do. He didn't think his readers were going to like it. He thought they were going to 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 hate it, basically. And they ended up loving it. And I just that's not me. I just don't do that. If I like it, yeah. Well, a lot of people feel this, and I I think it's a real problem with for writers. And maybe if I were more famous, uh, it would start to get to me. I don't know, but I don't think so. It just doesn't. <laughs> I just don't, it's not that I don't care. It's that I, I really am so hard on myself that I, I'm not worried about other people. You know, I'm the one I got to worry about. Hmm. Yeah. That's a good point. Well, you've been successful with yeah. just worrying about yourself. So. I guess. I can't really fault you for that. There's pros and cons to that. Let's put it that way. I, I think that you have, I've noticed, especially you taking the time to come here and discuss this. If you do take your readers very seriously, and I think we all appreciate that you write for yourself and not for us, because that's why if we, like you said, we don't know what we love. And if we were to tell you how to write the next book, it won't come out nearly as much or as good as it probably would have if you just write it yourself. Yeah, that I think that's it. It's not that I don't care about the readers. It's just that I know that what really matters is the work. Right. I I feel as if I'm a slave to the work. So it's not as if I don't care about the readers. It's that the readers say X, Y, Z. And I think, well, I will try and fit in what they say, you know, under the umbrella of what actually is what's right for the thing. Um, You know, one thing I did was uh, I don't know if you noticed in the story, there's this black panther or there's this creek, this cat creature that I called Wan Chu. Yeah. All right. So there is a. Uh, there's a person in, in my life who's a blogger whose last name is Wan Chu. And I told him I would put him into this book somehow. And there, there are writers who will craft a character around someone. They'll even use their features and so on. That's not even, it didn't even occur to me to do that. I'm like, no, you get a meaningless, like you know, this creature that already existed that I'm not changing for you will have your name, right? That's how you get in. But I'm not going to like, you know, introduce something based on a someone or a reader or a blogger. So I guess that's how I think it's and it's I just think that would be an insult to the to the thing. It's like I'm not going to change it based on somebody asking me to change it. We were saying right before you got on, I was saying how much I liked the big cat. So yeah, he'll be back. You don't just throw away a creature like that. You got to use it again. Right. And that's yeah, what was really fun neat. about him um, as a character. I mean, he really was a character, not just, you know, a cat. And um, is you kind of, you you get to to see him and, and he's by the characters in the story is dismissed as just a cat until later on in the story. And, uh, and the reader is just as surprised as uh, the characters. And I liked that because of, you don't, was, you don't think anything about it. It's like 
here's the cat. Come yeah, say yeah. Hi. yeah. Well, that's good. It's a, it's very subtle and I'm sure nobody's paying any attention. There's one of these little things that writers do to amuse themselves, but there's this one little scene where Chang, uh, I show him feeding the cat. He's giving him uh, meat right from his hand and his crew look, look at him doing this and they say, what a waste of meat. You know, what, you know, what are you doing? And he turns around and he says, yeah, yeah, don't worry about it. And then he pulls out a bottle of rum and he's like, want some rum? And if yeah. you, it's this joke, you know, like, what do you think he does to you? You know, um, anyway, little little personal joke just for myself. He's, like, he's managing you just like he manages the animal. <laughs> and they, you know, they don't see it at all, right? And people are sort of like that, you know, anyway. I was a manager once and uh, <laughs> there's sort of a... There, there's some amusement to me over this uh, with people how they they think they're the exception you know and uh this is how you manage people you give them what they want you give their little carrots and sticks and i wish it wasn't quite so simple but now that i have children i see it's truer than ever yeah it is it is true yeah. very true yeah <laughs> you didn't hear it when my daughter just said what <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Don't let them see how the sausage is made. Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. Sorry, I'm getting over the plague. Yeah. But <clears throat> I think cool. it's easy, safe to say we all love the book, so we had a great time with it. Well, that's good. I'm glad to hear. Well, I will do my best to get number two out, but there will be this other book out first, which is tentatively titled Descending Dragon. Mm. Um which is this character who's going into the depths of hell and bringing me along with him at the moment. <laughs> so, well, if you need advanced readers, I'll hold you to that. Um, well, it's getting, it's getting good. I'm, I'm enjoying it in a way. It's just, uh, I'm, I'm actually, I think the main problem is that it's in the first person and I've never written a long book in the first person. Hmm. And so, it's it's just a I'm flexing a new muscle. You think, well, what's the difference, right? But it is different. It, you get you get into this sort of rut, which is not good. Where you, if you're writing in the third person or whatever, you you get it's familiar and you, that's how you think, and and uh, it's different when you're writing the first person. It's much more stylistic. Um, you know, it's not as objective because it's just one person's perspective, and he's telling you how he thinks, and he's telling you. So you you have to get into that mindset and. Um, it's, I've realized it's a little bit like being an actor, I think, where you're getting into the character, right? Mm -hmm. So much more that I, I find myself literally saying things that the character would say in my real life. Unironically, you know, like I, and, and I'll sort of catch myself because my wife will give me a look or something. And uh, the character is based a little bit on, I think I might have mentioned this in a podcast to you before, a little bit on a, a Wild West sort of gunfighter um, who was uh, Doc Holliday, I think was his was his uh, name. It was tuberculosis. Oh. Mm -hmm. um, and so this character has, I don't say it, but he's basically got tuberculosis. So he's dying and he's going down into hell and he's got this really sardonic, sarcastic personality Or if anybody says something to him, he's got this sort of one-liner that he'll say back and I, I, I think I literally said to someone, 
the other day, uh, as I say, unironically, um, oh, Lord, what's the line? Oh, no, it's escaped me entirely. My story has ended in tears. Um, but it, it's these like West, old Western sayings, basically, that, that come out of me now. And I'm like, Christ, I'm already from the Texas of Canada. <laughs> I can't be caught seeing these things from like 1850. Um, I don't have a cell. I don't have a smartphone. I like I am becoming some sort of um, fictional character myself. I'm like a parody of of a of a Western man. I don't know. It's not good. You know, it's funny you say that because as a reader, I don't know if this happens to you, Steve, but if I read a book, especially if they're long and you're in the world for days on end, but I will find myself thinking and talking like the characters that I'm reading. And so it's funny you say that as a writer, as you're writing it, especially first person. I think this takes place when, when you read as a reader in the first person, because you are so much in their head. Yeah. That's like you're, you're um, with them the whole time in their head, not alongside them like you are with Ruka and Kale in the Ash and Sand. So you, yeah, you, you just put you that, that. You just put that exactly perfectly. I I felt I've really felt like I've had Ruka alongside me or you know next to me for years, and I still kind of do. But in this case, I really do feel like I am becoming this this sort of miserable son of a bitch. Um, <laughs> And, and I, I just, I don't know. There's something very strange about it. And um, so now I've got Ruka beside me and this, while I'm becoming this other guy and it's just not good. And, uh, you know, Ruka having, having him beside you, literally every word out of his mouth is you're, you're inadequate, you know, basically. Right. I mean, that's, uh, I don't know how you feel about him, but that's, that's more or less what he says to me, like, get up. Run faster, work harder, you lazy scoundrel. And so I don't know. That that's what I've got there. And then there's the guy who's like, You're dying, and um, yeah, who cares? It doesn't matter. I'm intrigued for sure. Good. Yeah. I'm glad. Well, it makes me think of the uh well, I think it was Tolstoy. There's a Russian writer who uh, who used to tell his friends to make sure that they didn't have any lengths of rope lying around the house when he came to visit. Because if he saw it, he might think about hanging himself. Jeez. And uh, I just think, oh, God, you know, there, there's an element of writers that are sort of like that, where they just think, well, it, nothing matters. Who cares? Doesn't. And that, that's this character a little bit. But he is kind of heroic. Because I, he's kind of mixed with what I think of as Samwise Gamgee, where he he even though he's dying and and his life has been quite miserable, he always does the right thing. Hmm. I love it. Samwise is my favorite character from Tolkien. I think he's the true hero of that story. Yes, well, Frodo is a hero as well, but but uh, you know, no question, Samwise gets the worst. Uh, He's like the ignored. I guess it works out for him because his life ends up being good in the end. So that's so true. Yeah. But it's like if you know Frodo would have never made it to the top of Mount Doom if Sam didn't literally carry him there. No, though I would say that Samwise wouldn't have made it without Frodo either. You know, so Tolkien did a beautiful job there. I yes. think, especially displaying the two classes. You know, um, you know, I just read a Reddit thread. I think it was where someone was saying. Look, Frodo 
is the one who sort of is is nice to Golem, right? Whereas Sam treats him like crap pretty much the whole time. And they're saying, well, they wouldn't have made it without Gollum either. So, so yeah, I think anyway. that was probably one of my favorite um, parts of um, of all, all three books was uh, Gollum uh, because he he's such a villain. So in the second book, you really get his story, right? He's such a villain. Um, he becomes what he what he already was. So a lot of people think he became what he became because of the ring. Well, no, he was already villainous before the ring. He had these dark things in his heart and he acted on them because the ring took away his, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? He acted on his impulses instead of, you know, like us normal people that go, no, that's wrong. I'm not going to do it. Um, but he changes. He does have some character development as he meets Frodo and Sam. And despite Sam being mean to him, um, you know, I, I loved that. And I really, really, every time I read it, I've read it several times. I've seen the movies many, many times. And I keep wanting, you know, something good to happen for him. For, and, yeah, Gollum to be saved or something. Yes. Yeah. Well, I think Gollum was really Tolkien's sort of most modern fiction thing. You know, it's sort of like the uh, George Martin quoting Alexander Solzhenitsyn that the line um, between good and evil runs through every human heart. You know, Golem is is Tolkien's demonstration of that. Whereas most of the characters, they're pretty much good or evil. And mm -hmm. it takes something like the corrupting influence of the ring to break them. You know, this this artifact, this titanic pressure. That, you know, whereas in real life, I think every day in every action, you know, you you choose between good and evil. You slide a little bit one way or the other and the descent sort of to go back to what we were talking about with Germany or with the Aztecs, every, every culture, every person moves a little bit in that direction. You know, did you lie today? Once you've lied, it gets, it's a little bit easier to lie the next time. Hmm. Um, you know, once you've made yourself weaker, it's a little bit easier to make yourself weaker again. And once you get weak enough, it's really hard to, to get strong again. And so when some, you know, when some religion or some dictator or some bad friend or whatever it is comes along and says, hey, will you do X? You know, and you think, you know what? Tell with it. Yes. <laughs> and so I think Gollum is a really beautiful demonstration of that. And so I think that's why somebody like you or me is if we like that kind of thing. So. That's, I kind of wanted to see him redeemed. I think a lot of, um, especially in fantasy, we like to see to see yeah. the villains redeemed. And uh, well, he's and not even a villain. That's true. You know, that's the thing. He's he's, and again, the portrayal of that with something like Gandalf, where he's saying, you know, what is Gollum? There's that moment where he's trying to when Frodo, or I can't remember which character is sort of calling him a villain, but Gandalf saying, I'm not so sure what he is. You know, he might just be the key to destroy the ring. Yeah. What is that? Need to see some fanfic where Golem yeah. is ends up being the one that that takes the ring. Like something happens to Frodo and Sam, and Golem takes over the journey. Yeah. That would be really cool. Well, but he kind of does, right? He when he's leading them, he he's more he does like, lead them. Yeah. So and, and at he, some point he's like, "Yeah, I'm gonna lead you right into this." 
spider's lair. Yeah. <laughs> Even though it gets you that much closer. We're off on a cool tangent now, but I, I don't remember. At what point does Gollum, if ever, know that they're going to Mount Doom? Does he know that their plan is to destroy When does he know that? That's a good question. I think he finds that out when they... Oh, wait. No, he wasn't actually there when they had the conversation with Faramir. Because they yeah. tell Faramir that they're going to, but I don't think Gollum was there when they had that conversation. That's that. Well, you know what? I'm rereading them, so I'll let you know if that ever happens. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I don't. It may not be addressed, though. You know, it's funny because Gollum is a pretty cunning creature. He's pretty. You'd you'd have to think. Well, why on earth are they going to? I don't know. Anyway, I, mean, I, I don't. They get there and they have the ring with them, but does he know that that's the only way to destroy the ring? So, so I'm just trying to help you redeem Gollum. You can you can either make the case that he doesn't know, and and so he's he's just uh, doing what he's told, or maybe at some level he realizes what they're doing, and he helps them anyway. Maybe he's trying oh, to be. That's going to be so much fun to reread thinking that now. Yeah, I, I don't think that's, that's the case. I think Tolkien gives the impression that he doesn't know, and he's just, but yeah, it's still fun. I mean, especially when you're rereading books. To kind of so one of the my favorite series of all time. There's four books and they have an order. They have a publication order and they have a chronological order. But the author literally says you do not have to read any of them in any such order. And to be honest, I've read them twice and I read them in different orders each time and got something different out of it. And I think mm. that's um, so so much fun when you're rereading books to kind of change your perspective going into it so that you have a different experience sometimes just rereading it knowing how it where it's going to end gives you a new experience so yeah well especially big books like you know so compact like the lord of the rings i actually don't reread those books i don't enjoy reading them particularly um you know even though i recognize them as very excellent books but they're so full of stuff uh you know that whole world that you could read them many times and, and get different things out of it each time there's no question mm -hmm. i don't know why i read them over and over again i can't help it hey i'm not judging i'm just saying <laughs> we've all got i read dune over and over in my life i've read uh, shogun over and over in my life uh to the point that it's falling apart and i need a new one um uh, i just bought this one which is um the next oh book. yeah yeah so I'm excited mm. to get to this. God, it is so heavy. Yeah, <laughs> it's almost as heavy as Kings of Paradise. <laughs> it's so good. They're all so good. King Rat is uh, is the other one. Um, I can't recommend those books enough, especially if you're all either unfamiliar with Asian history, East Asian history, especially Japanese history. Like this is a great way to fictionalize that and learn about it. I don't take it as gospel, obviously. It's not a. It's not a. Uh, history book but it's it's still it's a great way to learn about you know the creation of hong kong and is uh, that what this one's about i can't remember I love shogun so much i just bought this i, I was think just like, that, i don't know what it's about yeah i believe that that's what that is it's it's the creation of hong kong yeah yeah he's just such a great writer and he really is there's so to... much in these stories about the culture and history and you just feel like you're you said it's fictionalized but it it is fictionalized to the point where you um can enjoy it as a fiction novel 
but yeah. I feel like I also learned so much from it. Do you and hear my fiction is is that way, but to be done to the point where I could feel like I could talk to people about the history and feel confident in it. Yeah. yeah, well, you, I mean, just to take Shogun as the example, sorry, I don't know if you can hear my daughter now singing in the background. <laughs> we're, getting, uh, we're getting serenaded. Um, in Shogun, you know, it's not history, but, you know, the, the example of, I think he calls him Toronaga, um, that is, he is very much a fictionalized version of Tokugawa Ieyasu, who, who was a, a Shogun of Japan. And so he is he is sort of telling that story a little bit. It's not quite Game of Thrones, War of the Roses fiction. You know, it's not quite that far away. It is more closely aligned to the history. But it's sort of what I call uh, historical-esque, you know. It's, you are definitely learning about the history of the culture of J Japan at the time. The stuff he's telling you about, like the Treaty of Saragossa and the way the Portuguese and the Spanish and the, uh, you know, all these different things. It's all very much the history of the time and more or less how people would have thought at the time. And so you're learning a great deal of history when you read that book. It's just that, you know, no, Tornaga is not real. Shido's not real. <laughs> Um, so don't don't think that you have really learned the names and uh, oh no no yeah. but the history I mean and especially experiencing that culture from the point of view of a Westerner I thought was yes amazing and it's it's some of the you, best out there yeah. you know you don't you don't because of course they speak a different language and it's difficult to to actually understand these things. I have a cousin who is married to a Japanese woman and speaks fluent Japanese himself. And, you know, he loves Shogun as well and will tell you that it's very good. Um, yeah. Okay. I'm going to go and at least okay. Uh, okay. maybe we could wrap this up instead. I don't have to you. Yeah, we'll, we'll go ahead and wrap yeah. it up. I, okay. I'm sorry for taking us down a rabbit hole. No, no, no problem. Well, thanks, Richard, for coming by and chatting with us. We always appreciate you coming by, taking some time out of your out of your busy schedule to chat with a bunch of book nerds. So we appreciate it. Uh, it's always my pleasure. My busy schedule today is looking after uh, children, so it's <laughs> it's not really that busy. And and, and I've got two grandparents upstairs uh, mm. who scandalously let this one into the basement. Yeah. <laughs> and must be punished for their oversight immediately, but. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure they're terrified of me. Oh, yes. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but so always happy for... to talk about books. Well, where can people find you if they want to connect with you or find your books? Google Richard Nell. You'll find me. Um, it, it's fine. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Goodreads. I'm on Reddit. I'm on YouTube. And I am going to be starting a YouTube channel. Well, I have started a YouTube channel. I just doesn't have anything. It's got uh, like three audiobook samples. Oh, yeah. I should mention two small things. God, I'm terrible at this. One, audiobook for Kings of Heaven is coming out in the next couple of days. Mm. Um, it should be out now, but Audible's the worst. And, and actually, all of my books are right now on sale. Um, oh, they're all half price, uh, which will be true until the 18th. So now's a good time to pick them up. Yes. Awesome. I'll spread the word okay. and add all the links. Yeah. Yeah. I should probably tweet about it or something. I was going to wait till the audiobook came out and do it as a package, but 
you have no power over Audible and they they say, hey, this could take anywhere from four days to 10 days. And they usually take about six days. And so I planned around that, but it's taken longer than that this time. Yeah. Anyway, God bless them. Stupid Audible. Well, I'm yeah. excited. I think I might have to do a reread just listening to him now. Uh, Ralph Lister is a, just a gem. And he's he's so wonderful to work with. I don't deserve him. Um, <laughs> it, it's so funny. Maybe just a quick story. My parents were world travelers when they were young. And they flew all over the around, around the world back when such a thing was possible. And one of the places they went was India. And my dad tells the story that he... Uh, was dealing with this random guy at a bus station, uh, sort of an employee there who had to write him a letter to like uh, be able to get a pass to go on this specific um, bus station. And he said this, this random Indian employee writing him this letter, he said he looked at this letter and he said, it was so beautifully written, I could never have done it. And it was like the King's English, you know. And whenever I interact with Ralph Lister, that's how I feel, you know. He's he's interacting with a way that's so warm and so polite and so uh, gentlemanly. You know, I end an email. I'm just like, yo, uh, <laughs> hey, we a thing. I've only got two two hours. You know, very North American, right? I'm just like, let's get the thing done. This guy's like, dear Richard. You know, everything is polite. He he'll finish his email and he's like, best warmest regards as ever. You know, Ralph, I'm just like, Jesus, stop being so polite. You know, <laughs> I just put dash my name. Yeah. <laughs> I just realized he's the narrator for the Gardens on the Moon, which I'm listening to right mm. now. Yes, he is. Mm. Um, so I'm enjoying Shogun. that. So. And Shogun. So, yeah, that's where I first heard of him as a narrator. Yeah. Mm. Okay. Well, thank you, Steve, for having us. Yeah. On here. Thank you, guys. Yeah, thanks very much for all of your time wasted on uh, the Ashes <laughs> trilogy. Not wasted at all. I know, um, I know, it doesn't bring in the uh, YouTube views like Wheel of Time and uh, you know, Brandon Sanderson. This is one of these annoying things in the industry that uh, I'm going to have to think about more as I start up my own YouTube channel here. I'm not going to talk about these sorts of things, but. Um, <laughs> I know you've got your industry pressures. Oh, thank you. Um, you've got your pressures from from people who just want to see like the mainstream stuff. Um, so I'm very, I'm always very happy. I'm always very thankful when somebody takes the time and and wastes their view count on uh, indie <laughs> stuff like mine. Hopefully, I'll get as big as Brandon Sanderson, and and then you get the views. If Don't forget about us. Yeah, I'll forget us when you are. Yeah, okay. yeah. I'll save you a seat on my private jet. Yeah, there save us go. a seat and have some champagne and ice. We'll, we'll meet you there. Like the worst seat, but yeah, but a, a seat. seat. The bathroom. Seat. Yeah, the bathroom. <laughs> All yeah. right. Well, have a nice Sunday. Okay. Thank you, Richard. Bye, Ciao. everyone.